Well, good morning. You may wonder, why are we going to the Old Testament, to the book of Nehemiah? And first of all, you may go, is Nehemiah a place or a man? Well, if you don't know, he's a man. And uh, he is a man who God used in a fantastic way at his point in time. And we are going to Nehemiah for this simple reason. The world needs Nehemiah's in our present day. Our country needs Nehemiah's to be Nehemiah's today. Our community, this community, needs men and women who would be like Nehemiah was in that day today. This church needs individuals who would be like Nehemiah was in his day today. Even down to the street you live on, and maybe even within the household you live. What Nehemiah did in that day, this world, this community, your street, probably your household, needs that sort of individual. An instrument of God who can be one who restores the broken and burned in our world, the broken and burned in our communities, the broken and burned that live on the street that God has placed us on. So we're going to the Old Testament not just to learn history. We are going to the Old Testament to learn to what it means to be a man or a woman who is an instrument of God for restoring the broken and the burned. So I want you to bow with me before we open the scriptures and look at them closely together. Lord, the condition of the current world often is a condition that robs you of the glory you deserve. Your glory is not being revealed in so many ways, in so many places. And so we are asking, Lord, that you would use the study that you have put before us, this little book in the Old Testament that would become a guide for us, a pathway for us to become men and women, instruments of God for restoring the glory of God in the world in which you've placed us at this time. And Lord, I'm asking that you would meet with us now this morning. You would speak to our hearts, not just corporately, but Lord, that you would speak to our hearts individually in a manner that would impact the trajectory of our coming days. So Holy Spirit, we invite you to take your word and apply it to your people that we, that we would be to the praise of your glory in every way. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So let's look at who this man is. Let's get a quick introduction. Nehemiah chapter 1, the first two verses tell us this. These are the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year while I was in Susa, the capital. Paul's right there. He is simply letting us know that Nehemiah is a Jewish man, but he is not living in Israel. He's not living in Jerusalem. He is a Jewish man that has been now living in the capital of the Persian Empire, the greatest empire at the time that Nehemiah is living, and he is in the capital there. He's a thousand miles away from Jerusalem. And the 20th year is not meaning that he's 20. He's in the 20th year of the ruler of that greatest empire at the time, Artaxerxes. You may remember that name from history. So he is serving in the capital in the 20th year of Artaxerxes' reign as a Jewish man a thousand miles away from home. 
Then Hanani, one of my brothers. Now, the text doesn't give us an idea. Literal brother or simply fellow brother as another Jewish man. We don't know. Maybe a literal brother. Then Hananiah, one of my brothers, and some men from Judah came. Meaning where? They came the thousand-mile trek from where Judah, Jerusalem is, to Susa, the capital. And I asked them, since they had been there, concerning the Jews who had, now watch this, had escaped and had survived the captivity and about Jerusalem. Now, some of you may uh, have a clear picture of what that means, but the vast majority may go, I don't really know, he's given us context, but I don't get the context. He wants to know about the Jews who survived the captivity. What captivity is he talking about? And why is he curious about Jerusalem? So what we're going to do is take a few moments, and I gave you a rather unusual message memo this morning. And it's simply to set the stage for how this story fits within the broader, bigger story of what God is doing through his people. So you may go, but there's no blanks on it. Actually, there are. There's going to be lots of opportunity to fill in names that you may know but didn't realize where they fit within the unfolding story of God's redemptive plan. So we start with creation. The Old Testament begins, Genesis 1 and 2, introducing us to the God of creation, a a triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, who created this earth to reveal what? His greatness, his glory. The heavens declare the glory of God. He created this earth to declare his glory, and then he created humanity that we created in his image would fill the earth with his glory. That mankind, in relationship with him, created by him and for him and under him, would fill the entire earth with the glory of God that had been created to display the glory of God. But that's not what mankind did. Adam and Eve, tempted by Satan went their own way, chose not to live one with God, under God, and they, the scripture says, sinned. And in their sin, they were separated from God. And as one separated from God, they could not fill the earth with the glory of God. What they filled the earth with, the glo- what they filled the earth was with this, violence. Starting with their son, Cain, killed their son Abel. And that is just the first seed of the bloodshed that would fill the earth to the degree that in the opening chapters of Genesis, God says, the earth is filled not with my glory, but with violence. And so I will send a global flood and in reality start over again with a man named Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives. The the population went back to eight people. And they again began to multiply and fill the earth, not with the glory of God, but a desire to fill the the earth with their glory. They didn't want to scatter. They wanted to stay and make a name for themselves. And God confused their language, created separate languages so that they would have to scatter. But God's purposes, never miss this, God's purposes are always unstoppable. And he intends to do what? To fill the earth with his glory. And so he chooses a man named Abraham. A man named Abraham. And he says, Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. The descendants from you, Abraham, and your wife, Sarai, they are going to be more than the stars in the sky. And I'm going to bless people who bless you. I'm going to curse people who curse you. And I am going to, through you, Abraham, bless all the families, all the peoples of the earth. 
And so God starts with a man named Abraham who has a son of promise named Isaac who has two sons, but the son of promise is Jacob that a great nation would form. Jacob has 12 sons and the most significant in the unfolding story of what God is doing is the son Joseph because it is by God's design that Joseph, one of the youngest sons of Jacob, becomes a ruler in Egypt. And 70 individuals, descendants of the Abraham, move to Egypt. And there they go from 70 to over a million. And because they are so fruitful and so multiplying, the scripture tells us, that the Pharaoh of Egypt grew afraid of them, and so he made them slaves. And they lived for over 400 years in slavery in Egypt as they multiplied to be the number of people for a great nation, but you're not a great nation if you're slaves. So God raises up a leader, a leader who would lead this nation of people out of slavery, give them liberty as they left Egypt. He used Moses to lead them across the Red Sea. The Egyptian army pursues them. God closes the Red Sea, and they are free. They move down the Sinai Peninsula, and there they get the law. They get the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments are significant because they will define what makes the people of God distinct from other people on the planet. That's what the law of God is intended to do. It's to define them by how they live and how they relate to be the people of God who fill the earth with the glory of God. And then under a new leader, Joshua, they enter the land. And the fulfillment hundreds and hundreds of years earlier to Abraham is now a reality. One man has become a great nation with a leader, with freedom, with law and land. The only thing they lack is a king. And they want a king like the rest of the nations have kings. And so God gives them a king, Saul. But Saul does not have a heart for God. And his rulership is removed from him and given to a a young man named David who has a heart after, the scripture says, God's own heart. And it's under the leadership of David in the land, living according to the law and the freedom that God God gave them, that this nation begins to be the greatest nation on the earth. And it reaches its peak under David's son, Solomon. So that the earth and the greatest nation on it at the time is Israel. And Solomon, known for his wisdom and his wealth and his women. He was known for his wisdom, his wealth, but then his women are the downfall of a Solomon because the scripture tells us it's the women in his life that divide his heart. That he is not like his father David with a heart after God's own heart. And the divided heart of Solomon leads to ultimately a divided kingdom under the sons of Solomon. So that a kingdom that was great becomes divided. Israel, 10 tribes to the north. Judah, two tribes to the south. These tribes, all the whole way back to the 12 sons of Jacob. But as Israel is divided, Israel to the north, one ungodly king after another, God's judgment comes upon Israel and a wicked powerful nation called Assyria comes and conquers Israel. The 10 tribes to the north. In 722 BC, Assyria destroys Israel. But God supernaturally preserves the two tribes, Judah, to the south. Until in 586, then Babylon comes and finishes 
the downfall of the people of God, the nation of Israel. And it's at this time, after the north had been crushed by Israel and now the south crushed by Judah, that the great nation of Israel is destroyed to a bare remnant, a remnant that is in ruin. And they are in captivity. That's the word I want you to hear because this is setting the stage for what we just read, Nehemiah 1, chapter, chapter 1, verses 2. It's what's happening to those who escaped the captivity. There was a remnant who didn't get captured and taken back to Babylon. What's happening to them? Because this is a 70-year period of desolation where the only a remnant remains. And Nehemiah wants to know what's happening. Because after 70 years, a man... God used by the name of Zerubbabel came and began to take the temple that had been destroyed, the glory of Israel in their capital, Jerusalem, and he began to rebuild it. And Ezra began to continue that work. And as they sought to restore the glory of Israel, the temple, when they were finished, they actually wept, not because it was so great, but because it was so poor in comparison to how glorious it used to be. So there is a remnant that has begun to to restore a bit, and it's to that, it's to this question that what did Nehemiah ask? What's happening with the Jews who escaped the captivity? What is happening with Jerusalem? This is where Nehemiah fits into the picture. And this might seem unusual to you. Maybe you know this, maybe you don't. But if you're in Nehemiah, here's the way it looks in my Bible. If you're in Nehemiah, you're only, there's my Old Testament right there. See those two parts? Nehemiah only gets you halfway through the Old Testament. But it's actually the end of the Old Testament story. What's going to happen next? In biblical account, you know what happens next? Bethlehem. So what's with the the rest of the Old Testament? Well, here's here's how I hope you understand your Old Testament is put together. The first 17 books, Genesis through Esther, actually are the historical narrative of what God is doing with his people. Genesis covers from creation to as they go to Egypt. Then Exodus through Judges covers the slavery to then their leader, liberty, law, land, up until they become a kingdom. Then Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles. There's a first and second Samuel, a first and second Kings, and a first and second Chronicles. They deal with the united kingdom through the divided kingdom through the captivity. And it's then that you get, in the midst of that captivity, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. That's the order in your Old Testament, but actually, Nehemiah is the end of the story. Esther chronologically happens between Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, you may go, who cares about that? Well, you carry your Bible, you read your Bible. I think it actually helps you to understand. Oh, how's this put together? Maybe you never knew that. That halfway through the Old Testament, the story actually ends. So what's the rest of the Old Testament? Well, then you get five books of poetry. Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. They are poetry that would have occurred between Abraham. Job was probably a contemporary of Abraham through Song of Solomon, his wisdom, and his wealth. And then the final five major prophets and 12 minor prophets deal with the divided kingdom. Isaiah through Malachi deal with the word of God to the rebellious people of God. 
during that time. So that's how your Old Testament actually fits together. I hope that's helpful to you. It's super important that we understand not just how our Old Testament fits, but what we're stepping into as it relates to Nehemiah and what it means for us to be Nehemiah in our world. Because here's what I want you to understand. And if you've never read Malachi, it's not Malachi, he's not an Italian prophet. If you've never read Malachi, Malachi is actually the last book in your Old Testament is a contemporary of Nehemiah. So Nehemiah will give us the historical story. Malachi will give us God's view of what's going on and what he needs in the way of repentance within the people. So you might read Malachi in these days as we study the story of Nehemiah. What's Nehemiah want to know? See, he's right here. He's like, it's been, we've heard the temple's been restored, but how are the people and how is the city? Now go back, if you're still there, to chapter one. Let's get their answer, verse three. They're answering the question right here, what's happening They said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are, here's the answer, are in great distress and reproach. How are those who escaped the captivity? Horrible. They're in great distress and reproach. And Jerusalem, how's Jerusalem? The wall is broken down and its gates Burned with fire. Now, maybe you don't, because we don't live in cities like we think of cities then, what was the significance of the wall and the gates for a city like Jerusalem? Protection. And so, if the walls are broken down and the gates are burned, it simply is saying there is no protection. The people are vulnerable. The people are at the mercy of those who are enemies around them to do what they want, when they want, how they want to them. So understand the condition of the walls, the condition of the gate is the reason the people are in great distress and reproach. The condition of their city was impacting what they were experiencing. And when Nehemiah hears the news, here's what I want us to see most clearly now. When he he hears the news, what happens to him? Verse 4. What happens? What do you do first? First he sat down. That's not an oversight. Has no one ever said to you, hey, before I answer your question, you might want to sit down. So you don't faint, fall down. Sit down. In other words, that's their warning. This is going to be hard news. He sits down. And what's it say next? He weeps. Not a, not a, not a little tear. He weeps. And then he mourns for an hour, for days. And then he fasts and he prays. The text is making it exceedingly clear. The news is a kick in the gut that he just can't get over. You can't take a walk and go, all right, let me just move on. He says, when I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. I'm not even going to get to the, and he fasted and prayed. I'm just going to stop right there. Because I think it tells us everything we need to know 
about Nehemiah. And I actually, get ready, I actually think what causes us to sit down and weep and mourn for days tells us a tremendous amount about our own selves. And here's what's maybe most amazing to me. I was in Susa, the capital. I was cupbearer to the king. That's the first verse and the last verse of Nehemiah. Why does that matter? For this reason, what caused him to sit down and weep and mourn was something happening a long way away. And his life was actually pretty good. He had a job in the palace. Hey, it wasn't perfect. But all things considered, life was about as good as it could get for Nehemiah. And this news was a long way away and really didn't affect him. And But what did it do? <laughs> it deeply impacted him. You see, I think Nehemiah asked for us an absolutely critical question that launches the rest of this book. Do I care about God's purposes in the world beyond my personal world? That's what Nehemiah's sitting down and weeping and mourning reveals about his heart that just begs the, me to, to ask myself, do I care about stuff that actually isn't just wrecking my world? Hey, if it wrecks my world, I care about it, right? Yeah, if it's messing up your world, then of course you care about it because you want your world to be nice. <laughs> but if it's a long way away, like Ukraine, you hate it for them, but at least it's not happening here. But there's something incredibly powerful that a man who is removed and is not messing his world, it's breaking his heart. And I have to ask myself, do I care about God's purposes? See, it, it, see, this is not, oh, his team lost, oh, like the gladiator he had been. You know, this is not the Gators losing, folks. Because <laughs> the Gators winning and losing has zero to do, I hate to tell you, but zero to do with the purposes of God on the planet. <laughs> so pray all you want. It has zero to do with the purposes of God. What is breaking his heart is at the heart of the purposes of God. God, you, you've said Abraham is going to be the man through which you're going to bless all the families of the earth. You're going to fill the earth with your, your glory through this. And it's a wreck. Jerusalem isn't displaying your glory. Your glory's being robbed. Your people aren't displaying your It's being robbed and it breaks my heart. What am I talking about? I'm talking about how justice, it's lack of justice in our world robs God of his glory. I'm talking about, do I care about justice? Do I care about mercy? Do I care about people coming to know Jesus? Do I care about people hearing the gospel because it's the gospel by which people are born again and they can then fill the earth with his glory? Do I care about provision? Do I care about people who need being met in their need? Do I care about truth? Because he is the truth and truth reveals God's glory. And lies rob him of his glory. Do I care about the sanctity of human life? Because life in human life is a reflection of the image of God and it matters to me. Do I care about marriage? 
and marriage as it's intended to be. I care about the vulnerable and protection. You get what I'm saying? If you think, Doug, why are you so juiced about this? (laughs) For this simple reason. The rest of the book, the rest of the occurrence, all that happens is an overflow of verse 4. You understand what I mean? If you don't know the rest of the story, you're like, I I don't get it. Here's what I'm laying before you. (laughs) Instruments of God only become instruments of God. The broken and the burn only get restored when what? When I'm broken over brokenness. Nehemiah only does what he does, only says what he says, only prays what he prays, only fasts how he fasts. The rest of the book only happens because he cared. And that which robs God of his glory, and that which gives God his glory, only going to change if what? If we care. If we care, the restoring of the broken and burned. And I'm not talking about walls and gates. I'm talking about people. Are there broken people in our world? Burned? Big time. The restoring of the broken and burned. See, this is why I said the condition of the walls, the condition of the gates was the result of why the people were distressed. And there's great distress on our planet because people are broken and burned. And the restoring only begins with a person being broken over that brokenness. You know, that's a lot of brokenness. That's the point. Brokenness remains until somebody becomes broken to the point of stopping. Weeping, not manufactured tears, tears that you can't help, tears that when then maybe when you when you see brokenness, it's just a kick in your gut. This is where this is where it starts. Quite frankly, the rest of the book is an overflow of verse 4. If we don't have verse 4, if Nehemiah is a man who goes, oh man, that's too bad. I hate it for them. Lord, thanks that that's not my world. It's who he is, what he cares about that becomes the catalyst for what he does. So I wanna ask you a very practical, personal, this is not a right answer here, this is a true personal answer. What's the rubble in our current world that breaks your heart? That's a kick to you in the gut? And you may go, uh, I don't know. I'm not sure. I don't really know. You won't be alone. So there's going to be, if I can just be real practical right now, there's going to be a pressure to kind of go, I need to come up with like a good answer. No, you don't. If you don't know what breaks your heart about what the rubble is in this world, then I would simply say to you, ask the Lord, Lord, what breaks your heart? Make my heart like yours. I don't want to make this up. This is a work that God did in Nehemiah's heart, and this is a work 
that I would invite you to ask the Lord to do in your heart. And here's the reality. It'll be different for different folks because is there a lot of brokenness in our world? Yeah. It's going to be different for different folks because God uses us uniquely. God works in us uniquely. There may be, as you look back in the coming weeks, oh man, this is why I know, this is part of my story of why this rubble breaks my heart. But we gotta be authentic here, not go, oh yeah, I don't like that. I'm not talking about what you don't like. (laughs) There's a lot of stuff in our world we don't like. Talking about what kicks you in the gut. For some of you, I'm just going to give you a list here. Not an exhaustive list, just some ideas, okay? Do you hear me? Not an exhaustive list. And in fact, if you think, oh, let me write the list down and choose one, you've missed it. But the brokenness, the rubble in our current world are things like poverty, abortion, the unreached, that there are literally Billions of people on the planet who don't know there's a Jesus to believe in to be saved. That our world is filled with those who don't have parents. Orphans. Or on the other end, widows. Divorce because when God created marriage... He said, I I, I want to create a human relationship that becomes a picture of how I love my people and how my people love me. And divorce is a, a marring of that picture. The abuse and trafficking that's present in our current world, that's just a reflection of the degradation and the perversion of how far we are gone from the glory of God. Two, these are like massive global issues. But what about like the lonely person on your street? or the bullied person at work. Person who people just ignore. Or maybe avoid. See, it can be massive. And it can be an individual. It just breaks your heart. It might be as specific as what's going on in your life, the life of a friend. just keeps you awake at night because it's just robbing God of his glory or a neighbor or a family member. My point is, this world needs Nehemiahs. This country, this community, but our streets The the literal street that you live on. So here's how I want us to respond to the Lord. There's rubble up here. The two corners. Over north, there's rubble. The two corners. I'm going to invite you to come up. We're not going to go row by row, so you don't like have to. But if you know what breaks your heart, we should come up, grab a piece of rubble, and there's markers, there's pens around that rubble. Grab one, and there may be a line, so grab a marker, grab a piece of rubble, and sit on the step, sit here in the front row, and then write, write what breaks your heart. And I want you to just come and place it here.
Again, no problem with staying in your seat and saying, Lord, make my heart like yours. I'm going to make something up. It might be as big as the unreached. Or it might be like my wife wrote, the widow. The widows that lived on our street, the most neighborhood we've ever been in. If you're passionate about it and it breaks your heart, don't be mad about other people that it doesn't break their heart. <laughs> Sometimes when we get passionate about stuff, then we think, well, everybody who loves Jesus cares about what I care about. Guess what? It's a gift of God that I'm not broken to the core about everything broken in our world because I couldn't take that. So just ask the Lord. I see some folks getting up now. That's fine. We're going to take five, six, seven minutes. Just write it. Put the, don't take my pen home, please. Other people need it. <laughs> Just write it and, and put it here. But you're not just watching right now. I invite you to, it might really help you. Close your eyes until you're ready to get up, if you're ready to get up. Until then, close your eyes and invite the Lord. Lord, make my heart like yours that I would be broken about that which robs you of your glory. Place it here. Place it in the center over in north. And then just return to your seat. Our band will play. Not inviting you, honestly, to sing along. <laughs> inviting you to listen to the Lord. Open these eyes to see them like you do. Teach this heart to love like you. Open these hands to heal the way you do. More than words. Let my life speak truth to the orphan child. Send me, send me to the outsider. Send me, send me to the one in need. Send me, send me to the least of these. Send me, send me and open these ears to hear the Father's cry. Down my life, 
about this. One hand you may think, oh, just breaks his heart. On the other hand you may go, Lord, he, you may think he smiles that you're broken with what breaks his heart. Why? Because nothing changes until someone is broken. Nothing changes until someone is broken. Hey, broken doesn't finish it. <laughs> but it's the start. And so the poor will not be fed until you're broken. The unborn will not be protected until we are broken. Marriage is not going to be restored and upheld till we're broken by the brokenness of it. And the widow in your street is going to get ignored. Right? Until you're broken. The lost, those who have rejected Christ and you go to work with every day, nothing's going to change 
until there's a brokenness for them in somebody's heart. And so we can't be broken by everything. But it begins by saying, Lord, what causes me to sit and weep and mourn I invite you to bow your head with me. And in this moment to say, Lord, would you make me a Nehemiah? A person who who makes a difference for the broken and burned in this world. Lord, would you Engage your church. Engage our hearts. That we would be your people. Zealous for your glory. Filling this earth. That you would lead us in the coming weeks. So not just sweep, but to make a difference. To bend our knees and to roll up our sleeves. For the sake of your glory, in the name of Jesus, amen. There are on your way out of both auditoriums more rubble for you to grab a piece and to put it somewhere in your car or in your home over the next coming weeks that will remind you this is what you are asking the Lord to use you. And so I invite you to grab one on your way out that it would be a reminder to you and that you'll be with us next either Thursday or Sunday as we begin to then go, what do broken people do? Because that's where we'll go next. All right. God bless.